would you ever consider running for office yourself? Absolutely. Yeah, I would consider it. Yeah. Is that a good enough answer? (laughs) From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. And that's America Ferreira, the actress and activist. You may know her from her starring roles on Ugly Betty and Superstore. But these days, she's focusing a lot of her time on the 2020 election, as the group she co-founded, She Se Puede, aims to boost political participation of Latinas throughout the country. No one is doing this for us. No one is really focusing on empowering the Latino community long term. And yet everybody likes to show up and try to benefit from very transactional interactions with the Latino community. And then it's a shocker when it doesn't work. Politics isn't anything new for America. And even as she talked about 2020 and the work she's doing, we also talked about where it all started as a nine-year-old whose political awakening came after her home state of California passed the infamous Prop 187, spurring waves of fear among Latino immigrants, including her parents, who had legal status. My mom did have to pull me aside before dropping me off at school and say, teachers might ask you questions today about where you're from and where you were born and where your family's from. Kids might say things, you might hear things that are bad or nasty about you or who you are. It's not your fault. And now, here's my conversation with America Ferreira. Well, America, thank you so much for joining me. We are speaking 30-some days before the 2020 election. Donald Trump has tested positive for the coronavirus. It feels like every day there is something shocking happening this election cycle. Many of our listeners know you from your work in Hollywood as an actress. We are here to talk about your activism. But first, I wanted to ask you, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. How are you holding up? Thank you for asking. I'm okay. You know, I'm okay. I think it's easy to get bogged down and go into a deep, dark spiral <laughs> of, of what's wrong with this moment. Um, but the reality for me is that I am not suffering and I do not have many of the um, day-to-day challenges that so many Americans have right now. And I try my best to stay focused on what I can do to be a part of a solution. And um, that's where I'm at right now is, as you said, we're, we're 30 some days away from election day, even though I like to say November 3rd is when the election ends. The election is now. The election is happening as we speak. And we should all be waking up every day and asking ourselves what we're doing to um, increase voter turnout, increase engagement, to get people the information they need, to combat misinformation, to break through the confusion that's been created around things that should not be confusing. So I'm trying to stay focused. Thanks for asking. Yeah, of course. So we are here to talk about a new effort. You've been long involved in kind of activism in terms of certain issues and things. But uh, you, along with Eva Longoria, are doing something a little bit different. It's not just get out the vote, which we often see a lot of celebrities get involved in. Tell us what it is and kind of what's the 30 second elevator pitch about what you're trying to do this time that's different than what you've done before. 
Yes, Eva and I, along with a group of amazing Latinas from different backgrounds, political, business, technology, research, and science, um, we launched a new online platform community for Latinas by Latinas called She Se Puede, which of course is a play on the phrase Dolores Huerta coined Si Se Puede. And it is an online lifestyle community for Latinas to see themselves to be affirmed, to be inspired, and to be informed about the power that they hold and how to act on that power and with that power. And so civic participation is a very big piece of the puzzle, but we are touching upon every aspect of of our lives that matter, everything from the workplace to our workouts to to, um, how we're feeding our families during a pandemic, uh, being moms, not being moms, um, and also uh, using our power civically and politically. So the different, I mean, I've heard, you know, there's a lot of different campaigns that happened. Is this something you anticipate is going to go long beyond the 2020 cycle? This didn't launch that long ago, but what have you seen so far? Absolutely. This is not a 2020 campaign. This is a long-term cultural revolution and, and a cultural shift for Latinas. I'll give you a little background on on where I come from at this, with my experience, you know, how I'm viewing it. I started participating, volunteering in politics and campaigns and elections uh, over a decade ago, you know, for specific candidates. And I'd go out and I'd knock on doors and I'd pound the pavement and I'd try to get Latino voters out. And what I realized was that we were always doing too little too late. Mm-hmm. I have never been engaged with an election campaign that is holistically concerned with building power within the Latino community. And why that's a problem is that we know that there are 32 million eligible Latino voters this year. This is not news. This did not sneak up on us. Everybody has been talking about the the growing Latino demographic, the potential of, of the numbers, but there are very few, if any, parties, candidates, campaigns or elections that choose to empower the Latino electorate in a meaningful and effective way. Eva and I love to joke that you could you could set your clocks by it. Two months before any given election, our phones start ringing off the hook. Latinos are going to matter in this election. It's, you know, like they're seeing it for the first time. We have known that. And all of a sudden, two weeks ago, people woke up to the news. But this is something that we've known for a very long time. And And I think what drives me and and I think what drives the mission of She Se Puede is real investment and real long-term power building in our community. And a big part of that is understanding what are the barriers to our participation, not just in politics, not just at the voting booth, but everywhere. Why are we not seen in in the worlds of business, in in sports and entertainment, in storytelling? We need to start truly understanding the barriers to our visibility and our seat at the table to really start solving for the problem. And so Shisa Puede is, one of our founders is the wonderful Stephanie Valencia, and she founded a a research lab called Equis Lab, uh, specifically to research and understand the Latino electorate, which shocker, 
nobody had ever done before. You know, it's a little bit of this, this awakening of no one is doing this for us. No one is really focusing on empowering the Latino community long-term. And yet everybody likes to show up and try to benefit from very transactional interactions with the Latino community. And then it's a shocker when it doesn't work. And then we're blaming the Latino community for not showing up. When the truth is nobody asks us to participate. No one knocks on our doors, campaigns, parties, every election, there is not a true understanding or investment placed in our community. One of the barriers to Latinas specifically showing up at the polls is a confidence gap. They don't think they have the knowledge to participate and they think they need a PhD in political science to vote. And so that is one of the missions is to create confidence within our community and reflecting back at them all of the ways that we as Latinas are holding up our communities. That culture piece of it, the storytelling piece of it, the narrative piece of it really, really matters when you're talking about a gap that, that is about confidence. That is as, as real an obstacle to getting Latinos to use their voices in elections as is anything else. Well, it's interesting. We at Women Rule talk a lot about these kinds of issues when it comes to women either engaging, like you're talking about with, you know, going to the ballot box, but also deciding to run or not to run. I was reading um, before we, we were doing this conversation that in 2018, Latinas turned out to the polls between 10 and 15 points behind white and black women, which is a pretty a, a big gap, like you're talking about. Um, and clearly it's not just a six month, you know, go on the ground campaign and you're going to solve that gap. Is this a two or a four or a, like a 10 year where you, I mean, how much do you think you realistically have to invest in this? Well, I mean, in terms of, you know, this is exactly the point, you know, if you're just concerned with getting Latinas to the polls to win an election, that's something that is completely based on, you know, who's running, Who's speaking to uh, this group? I mean, we saw, we have seen as recently as the midterm elections in 2018, historical participation across ethnic lines, gender lines, age lines. Things could change overnight in terms of, you know, inspiring and mobilizing a community. The whole point for us is that it has to go beyond winning an election. I mean, I think we've learned if nothing else, in the last decade, no one election, no one candidate is going to protect us or, or, or equal empowerment of an entire community. Um, and I think what, what's important about what you just said in terms of Latinas showing up so far behind their white and non-Hispanic Black counterparts is that we tend to think of Latina voters in places like Florida or Arizona. But the truth is, is that in the most important states that are part of the path towards a victory in 2020, North Carolina, Michigan, Wisconsin, these are all states where Latina voters are the margin of difference. They can be the margin of defeat or the margin of victory. And so this isn't a Latino issue. This is an American issue. This is a democracy issue. Whether or not Latinas are empowered and resourced and informed in a way where they can show up on election day 
will be the difference between what happens in this country moving forward. And so that should be on everybody's mind. All right, well, let's take a step back as we often do in this podcast. Uh, tell us a little bit about where you grew up. You know, were you always kind of civically minded or was there something that spurred you into action? Well, I uh, was born and raised in Los Angeles, raised mostly in, in the San Fernando Valley, Canoga Park, Woodman Hills, the youngest of six children to Honduran immigrant parents. I always like to say I, I didn't have the privilege of not being political. By the time I was nine years old, I was already made aware of how politics impacted my life in very real ways. There was a proposition um, on the ballot in California, Prop 187, that threatened to take away the access to education for children from mixed status homes if their parents were undocumented or uh, so forth. And that was not my case. However, my mom did have to pull me aside before dropping me off at school and say, teachers might ask you questions today about where you're from and where you were born and where your family's from. And when your parents got here, kids might say things. You might hear things that are bad or nasty about you or who you are. It's not your fault. You know, it's another kind of conversation that not all parents have to have with their children. And I was so confused. I mean, I didn't understand the politics of anything she was talking about. All I knew was that people were going to look at me and that might make me the target of something bad. So by the tender age of nine, I understood that there were people in very powerful positions making decisions every day that had an impact on my ability to just go to school and be a kid like other kids. And so from then on, you know, I've had to be aware, you know, not that as of nine years old, I was, you know, marching and protesting, but it was always an awareness. And and then I, I was a senior in high school on September 11th, 2001, and became so, you know, aware of, of my ignorance of how little education I had received about the world and about um, America's place in it and America's role in it. And so I was going into college studying international relations in 2002 when big things were happening. So, so I, I would say that 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 for me was the real sort of political awakening of as, for, as it is for so many people, going into college, but having that be paired with September 11th and everything that ensued. I mean, you're a daughter of Honduran immigrants. I mean, is it personal or is it just like you look at what's happening and, and somewhat sometimes with this administration and it's the frustration just kind of boils over? Yeah, of course it's personal. Like, uh, yeah, I'm the daughter of Honduran parents. Uh, um, many, many, many of these children uh, uh, fleeing unlivable circumstances and then being separated from their parents and kept in prisons, they come from Honduras, which is where my family is from. And, you know, I'd like to believe that even if I wasn't of Honduran descent, it would still make me pretty angry that children were being locked up in prisons. You know, I, 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 I would hope that, that my compassion would still be there, even if they weren't people who looked like me. Uh, but of course it's personal. It's personal as the daughter of Honduran immigrants, but it's personal as an American that everything I believed and was taught to believe about this country has deteriorated 
that how could we be a country that has accepted and become numb to the reality that our government is locking up children? I mean, that's, that was unthinkable to me as a child growing up in this country, learning about the version of America we were meant to pledge allegiance to every single morning. I ask, and I'm sorry, we're kind of jumping all over here. We have a lot to cover, but you know, you've also been, I think one of the things that's been interesting in reading about you more and researching for this podcast is how active you've been on a lot of different issues. And in, certainly in terms of politics as a surrogate, um, but you've also been really active in the Me Too movement. I wondered if you could talk, it seems kind of similar in the sense of you're really looking for cultural change, right, in Hollywood, a little bit similar to what you're thinking about with regards to Latina voters and to kind of think about how culture needs to kind of maybe catch up a little bit. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I was in the rooms early on during the formation of Time's Up and the response to the Harvey Weinstein um, story breaking. And what was so revolutionary about it to me was that women were coming together in unprecedented ways. Women all within the same industry um, who had just never ever built relationships with one another or built power with one another. And what we really realized so early on was that that lack of relationship, that isolation that we feel just even in our own industry is what has perpetuated our powerlessness for so long. Obviously, the isolation and disconnect that we felt in our experiences with sexual harassment, but that also extended into, you know, just the imbalance of power, uh, being paid equally, uh, being credited commensurate with the work that you did. So many abuses of power that we all suffered in our silent little corners, uh, realizing that it didn't have to be that way, that when we came in relationship with one another, we all of a sudden didn't feel alone and, and we felt more courageous to do something about it. And then to see that extend even beyond our industry, beginning with this beautiful letter that was written to women in Hollywood from the National Alliance of Women Farm Workers is standing in solidarity with us because of our shared experiences with sexual abuse and the abuse of power. It was an invitation to us to, to connect with, with women everywhere and, and connect our fight for justice within our industry to every woman's fight for justice in whatever industry she's in, because, because in spite of our very, very disparate experiences as a whole, there are things that connect our experiences, regardless of our pay grade, regardless of, of, our, of our status in, in culture, the imbalance of power and the abuse of power uh, and the inequity that exists for women across industries all of a sudden connected us and we were able to attempt the founding of an organization that was built on those principles, that this wasn't going to be a fight for just women in Hollywood or just women of a certain ethnicity, but that it was going to uh, always strive to include all women everywhere. Yeah, I always thought that was very powerful in the sense of you could use the star power from Hollywood, but then really highlight 
uh, some of the other people's work, you know, whether that's Tarana Burke, who we've had um, at Women Rule Summits and, and different things. It was it was pretty powerful. Um, unfortunately, we are almost out of time, but I do want to ask you two quick questions on this cycle, this election, getting back to kind of why we wanted to make sure you came on. Can you tell me a little bit? I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic as we started this. So clearly that's not, you know, kind of the campaigning that you've probably done in previous uh, election cycles, but are you involved with uh, the campaign in 2020 or supporting or doing anything along those lines? Uh, yes, absolutely. I'm doing a lot of my work to get out the vote and inform voters and engage go- voters through She Puebla, which is a, is a nonpartisan um, non-for-profit organization. And, and that is more generally about voter participation um, and, and just getting the right voting information to people. Um, on, in my personal capacity, I have absolutely endorsed um, uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and, um, and I'm doing what I can given the circumstances to engage with the campaign. In an interesting way, it actually makes it easier to to do more in any given day, to show up in five different states just from the exact same office space. Um, but but it's absolutely a strange experience to be living through this time and this moment without face-to-face human connection. Um, I think that we're looking for ways to uh, to be able to to be live and in person um, with some of the campaigning, uh, but only in ways that that feel safe and appropriate. That makes sense. And last question, which we ask a lot of the women who have been involved in politics in different ways, would you ever consider running for office yourself? Absolutely. Yeah, I would consider it. Yeah. Is that a good enough answer? <laughs> I mean, would we have news here? Anything you'd like to run for? <laughs> no, it's not something that I'm, it's not something that I'm like, that feels imminent to me. I just think culturally we need to, to shift the idea of what it means to, to see ourselves in positions of power, to represent one another. And really, I think we need just a mental shift around politics. Like, you know, it's become this sort of, um, this place where you you spend your whole life getting elected and then you spend the rest of your life trying to stay elected. And that has totally shifted it away from what it is, which is meant to be public service. Like we should be able to be doctors and lawyers and journalists and storytellers and also be able to imagine ourselves being public servants, whether that's for two years, four years, eight years, or for, you know, or for 10 years, but, but it shouldn't have to be, uh, I'm going to disconnect from the world and life and go and, and go run for office. That's the opposite of what it should be. It should be, I'm going to take all the life and all the experience and everything that I've learned being a human, being an American in this world and do my best to serve the public and to serve the country. All right. Well, we heard it here first. We're going to be watching to see if and when you run. America, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Women Rule is produced by Zach Stanton. Irene Noguchi is the executive producer of Politico Audio. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. Please share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at apalmerdc. You can also join the Women Rule community by texting WOMEN to 66866. 
And if you like what you hear on this show, check out some of Politico's other podcasts, Politico Dispatch, Politico Energy, and Pulse Check, just to name a few. And coming soon, a brand new podcast series from Politico Global Translations. The way to bring this country to its knees is to choke off our supply. Imagine for a second our globe as a series of supply chains. Food, everyday goods, and raw materials zooming across the world in a single day. But what if those global supply chains suddenly ground to a halt? It's not just about finding which vaccines work, it's about preparing the manufacturing and supply chains for those. And if one little detail in those supply chains goes wrong, we might not be getting vaccines to people when they desperately need them. The global pandemic showed us what it's like when we can't get the things we need. Masks, personal protective equipment, even toilet paper. There's simply not enough raw materials. We have to figure out how to get this right. There is a bigger story behind the scarcity. We need to fight back against China. A bigger picture with implications for our future. That's going to be a major challenge. On this season of Global Translations, where has globalization fallen short? And where do we go from here? The 90s called and their economics is not what we need now. I'm Louisa Savage. I've spent my career thinking about the global forces that shape our world. Join me and other journalists from Politico. A new season of Global Translations coming in October. Presented by City, a leading global bank.